This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. And today we talk about tigers. India very recently marked the 50th anniversary of Project Tiger. India has saved the tiger, which is a remarkable feat, bringing a predator like the tiger back from the brink of extinction in a country of now over a billion people. Just think of it. So most recently, the estimated number of tigers in India has gone up to 3,167 in 2022. India now has something like 70-75% of all tigers in the wild. Remember, the tiger is functionally extinct in Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam. There's been a small comeback in Thailand. Its status in Myanmar is frankly unknown and most likely very tenuous. So India's success has been remarkable. Wildlife tourism is booming. But species conservation is a complex issue with many moving parts, with both people and wildlife having agency. So it never really ends and old challenges remain and new challenges emerge. Today, I am joined by two of India's foremost wildlife conservationists who have been at it for decades in multiple roles in the field and in advocacy. Belinda Wright joins me from her home at the edge of Kanha Tiger Reserve in central India. Among other things, Belinda is the founder of the Wildlife Protection Society of India, WPSI, one of India's early NGOs to work to save endangered species and habitats. And Bitu Segal joins me from Mumbai. Bitu is the publisher and editor of Sanctuary Asia, the pioneering and persistent wildlife magazine, and started the Sanctuary Nature Foundation, the Kids for Tigers Network, and a whole lot besides. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Total pleasure. Pleasure. Very, very delighted to be here with you. Thank you. So Bitu, perhaps I should start with you. What have we learned in terms of best practices that have accounted for India's success in saving the tiger? What worked and what did not work? What worked was isolation for the tiger. It needed to be kept protected from not just humans, but human actions and activities, including intrusive farming, including poaching, obviously, including the fires we would set, including the noise we would make and the disturbances we would cause to its prey because that's that was the key. So I think isolation was really what uh, we managed to do. And uh, that, that, to my mind, is one, one real lesson because this, to my mind, was the world's first two-scale rewilding project ever. So leaving the tiger in a habitat alone. Leave the tiger alone and it will take care of itself. Interfere and it goes. Belinda, your views on that same question? Well, I think uh, one important thing is that in that first phase, we got new wildlife laws. Um, and they have been um, really critical to, to India's conservation efforts. Um, and I, you know, I agree with, with what Bitu said. But habitat protection... Was was really a huge focus. Um, some villages were, were were moved out, and the idea was to to basically in the early days was to leave the tiger alone. It's a very very tenacious and sort of wise animal. It's a solitary animal, so they're a super efficient tenacious animal. Leave them alone, they will flourish. So. That continued for, for some time. And then I suppose it was when the last tigers went from Sariska in 2004 that everybody woke up to the fact that we had to go to the second stage, which was landscape 
tiger conservation. And so there were many more tiger reserves were, were included and things like that. But then we had more scientific, robust things. We had better communication, all sorts of things. And I think it's important to, to remember that up to mid-2021, just how many villages have been moved out of tiger reserves to, to, to give the space to the tigers. And in, in most cases, best, better opportunities for people who lived in these remote forests. But um, I was just looking up the figures. There's 215 villages and about 90,000 people. So these were all part of, I think, the best practices. And then we had intelligence gathering, which was, you know, very new to, to wildlife, which started in, in the sort of 1990s. And more recently, I think um, the NTCA protocols have given a bit of uniformity to, to, to tiger conservation practices. What did not work was there was no focus on gaining the trust of local people, you know, the trust and support of local communities. And I think that's perhaps our, you know, the biggest sort of blunder of, of tiger conservation. So, um, and now there's probably too much focus on managing the tourism and not enough uh, groundwork. Because to save tigers, you need to understand what a tiger needs and you need to to know the tiger's domain well. And that's that's lacking. And you know, these are some obvious things like the institutions become very bureaucratic and and funds are dispersed late and, and things like that. But there are lots of positive things. Okay. Bitu, would you like to add something to that? No, I think Blue has it right here. The point is that there were very early days, we're talking about the 1970s, and it was the fact that shikar was stopped, it was the fact that isolation was given, and all these things, including the question of moving villagers out, it sort of created a situation in which we got biological proof of concept, because everything came back. The grasses came back, the water came back, the trees came back, the prey came back, and the tiger flourished. But we didn't get social proof of concept. What happened exactly was that we, in fact, found ourselves creating these spaces where the local community were really the people paying the greatest price. For Every time people would congratulate us, you've done so much for the tiger, we found that, uh, yes, but the cows were being killed, the fields were being raided by by uh, herds of deer or monkey or wild pig, etc. And um, apart from that, they had very little option because of the strict laws that had been made. They had very little option for any kind of sustenance other than the farms that fed their children. So we found that Belinda, of course, has been doing amazing work on the issue of wildlife, uh, you know, preventing wildlife poaching and doing all the investigation work. But that, for many people, became their only real source of income after a point. So it became very difficult to control who's going to set the fires, for what purpose, was it to collect mahua flowers or was it to X, Y, Z? And really, uh, the poachers, if we, if we found Ranthambore Tiger Reserve emptied and we found Sariska emptied, 
it was because these people were in the pay of poachers. And it, it was an impossible task. There were not enough resources to physically protect with guns and guards. We needed the local communities to come back. So if that was a lesson to be learned, that's one thing. I think the other reason that we now find the tiger in deeper trouble than it was, according to me, in 1970, is that we never planned for success. We were just looking to hold on to those 10 tigers and turn them into 14 tigers and 15 tigers. But the tiger is at the apex of its evolution. When we gave them that isolation, they flourished. Their numbers went up. But at the age of two years, the mother is not going to be able to feed four hulking cubs. So the males have to go, the females have to go. So then they came into conflict with human beings. And we found that the poachers were active. On top of that, in search of development, large parcels of land became converted. I mean, lands which were not necessarily tiger reserve, but tigers lived there. They turned into uh, coal mines, lignite mines, copper mines, etc., etc. So it was a combination of many things that didn't work, but none of these things are not fixable. At this point, we can fix it. There's a word called homeostasis which is the way in which, say, your temperature of your body will come back to normal just by sweating and things like this. The whole biosphere is built on the, on the basis of homeostasis. So there's a conspiracy for life. If we just do what we originally did, we don't need to count every single last tiger. We need to make sure that the maintenance engineers of our planet, the monkeys, the birds, the bees, the beetles, all they had to do was to fix the Garden of Eden, the one that we walked into and caused so much trouble. So that was that was really the thing. And now, if we have, if Homo sapiens, I've often I've often suggested that we should be really called Homo stupidus, you know, because the manner in which we are mismanaging the world and the, the biosphere. If we merely allow the gardeners of Eden to get back to do the job. It's very easy for the numbers that we have now. And you don't count 3,147. You say, well, roughly 3,000. 3, it could be 10% here. It could be 10% there. You know? So we just leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. You know, so. Okay. So, uh, Belinda, wildlife-human conflict is rising, not necessarily between tigers and humans, but generally as wildlife populations increase. You mentioned monkeys and so forth. Uh, elephants are a, a problem. There is limited habitat. Here I should mention um, for listeners, uh, full disclosure, I'm also a trustee of the Corbett Foundation. We work in India across several wildlife habitats, and that includes a successful scheme by funded by the World Wildlife Fund to compensate local livestock owners for their losses to tigers and leopards outside the legal boundaries of these reserves. So India has a long tradition of coexistence with wildlife, including predators, unlike, say, in the West or indeed in Southeast Asia. But that is being strained, especially by human-elephant conflict in certain zones. Belinda, what are your thoughts on managing this conflict, are we, are these conflicts? Are we doing a good job? Well, I think they, they, it's got much, much worse. And it's really widespread now. It's not just in little isolated pockets, um, partly because... Um, we didn't. There wasn't enough focus also on, on what Bitu was saying, which is protecting these these critical tiger habitats outside tiger reserves, 
which are basically wildlife corridors for tigers to go from one place to another. And by stopping all that, you know, it, it just it, it creates more and more conflict. So, um, I mean, I can give you horrendous figures, and probably the, the worst figures of all is is the number of people that have been killed by tigers. In in one forest division, Chandrapur, near Tadoba Tiger Reserve, there were 54 people killed by tigers last year in 2022. And, you know, compensation is one thing, but this is, I mean, this is really um, uh, not sustainable. It's, it's you know, people are losing their, their loved ones from tigers, so they're not going to, they're not going to become tiger huggers. Um, so there's a number of things I think we should do, but, you know, we have to take a landscape and site-specific approach to, to, to this. Um, I, I don't think it's rocket science. I really don't. I think um, we need to, to work more with territorial divisions. At the moment, Project Tiger doesn't fund um, any, any uh, conflict or, or tiger conservation work outside. Um, the tiger reserves and the buffer zones. Um, we need awareness and education, which a lot of NGOs are doing extremely well, but it needs to go further than that. Um, and we need timely dispersal of compensation, because compensation does make a difference. And in, in the better known places, it is being timely done now. But I would say, you know, 90% of the places it's not. Um, and you know, things like alternative agricultural practices, which are acceptable to the local people, that can also make a huge difference. Um, the carrying capacity of landscapes, etc. So it, it needs to be human. It, it just was a subject that was avoided for so long that it needs to become the subject now. And I mean, more important than poaching, more important than probably anything else is to work with local people to solve this problem of human-wildlife conflict. I mean, you know, it just is not sustainable at all. Okay. Bitu, 50 years of Project Tiger. Do we have a strategy for tigers for the next 50 years? We don't have a strategy, primarily because I think that we have undervalued the natural assets which are the foundation on which all human activity rests. The biosphere, for instance, um, is the one that feeds us with the monsoon rain. Um, now, it's very difficult to explain to an economist. Belinda correctly talked about the villagers. I'm saying that the economists are the ones that actually need to be uh, educated right now because the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the biosphere. And at this moment in time, we see that in the name of GDP, we are trying to push GDP up. And in the process, we are trying to push the biosphere down, which we won't succeed in doing. But we need to wake up and smell the coffee on the fact that it's not just India. And it's not just tigers. From polar bears to giraffes to uh, pandas to everything. These systems of nature are the ones that give us our water. They give us soil fertility. So... I think it's very, very, very vital that um, we understand why the tiger should be saved, not just how the tiger should be saved. 
frankly, you, as Belinda has said, as I've said, make sure that the local people around become the first beneficiaries of a restoration of biodiversity. And the rest of it, Nirmal, I think that you know that there is actually in the whole world, there's just only one game in town right now. And that's the climate crisis. If we don't rein in the climate, if we don't learn to live with the, with the biosphere wronged, and if we don't repair our ways, then everything that we do is temporary. Two years, three years, we'll get a reversal. We had a local extinction in Sariska and Ranthambore. We will have local extinction in 14 other places. And I'm not talking in 30 years. I'm talking in three to five years because the, the floods and the droughts that take place, they're pauperizing people. There's internal migration going on. So these are huge problems and we have to work with government. And we have to convince people that this is in our best interest. And at the moment, we're failing to do so. That's why I say that I don't think we're prepared for the next 50 years, not just to save the tiger. I worry about ourselves in the next 50 years. Okay. Belinda, you wanted to add something? No. You know, some solutions are really not, not that difficult. And I, I just suddenly um, remembered something. All these, the, the human beings that are being attacked by tigers and some, a few by leopards, but mainly tigers, killed, injured, and so on. Almost all of them are out in the forest collecting fuel wood. Fuel wood to cook their food, fuel wood to sell in villages and towns. And the reason why the collection of fuel wood has gone skyrocketing is that the the subsidy on LPG gas has been basically stopped. So there's no other way for poor villagers to keep warm or to cook their food. 24 hours a day, they need fuel wood. So if, 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 the, if the government or society can find a way of, of solving that one problem, it would make a huge difference, difference to human wildlife conflict. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Absolutely. Um, back to you, Bitu, for a second. Now, the focus on this iconic predator has saved entire ecosystems. But what about grasslands and wetlands? Do they get adequate protection? We are at the confluence of twin crises, climate change and biodiversity. Sometimes I feel that we are just reduced to chronicling the decline in the volume of, you know, bird species and without being able to do anything about it. Is India up for these challenges at all? Well, Blue said it right. I mean, we need to think landscape. We needed to think landscape then. We thought we were thinking landscape then. But at this moment in time, if you look at grasslands, I mean, every single tiger habitat of any particular size, you'll have a wetland in there, you'll have a grassland in there, you'll have a riverine system in there, you'll have an arboreal system going there, the soil microflora is doing well. All the things that we need to do for the whole planet, we've done in a microcosm in the Petri dish that is the tiger reserves. And also some of the other places like the wetlands and things like this outside the tiger reserves. So I'd, I'd say that we need to take a few lessons from our successes. A lot of lessons are taught to us by our failures, but this whole business of what you might call 
ecological amnesia, you know, that you, you, you succeeded in one place and you forgot you succeeded and did the same wrong thing all over again. So I feel at this point, I, I had mentioned that there's only one game in town, that's climate change. And India is doing a remarkable job in making sure that we actually make a transfer, we transfer from coal and uh, oil and gas and we move to mega scale, let's say things like uh, solar panels and, and even, uh, you know, uh, windmills and stuff like this. But it's not yet fully understood that the forests of India themselves are infrastructures. So when we try to build infrastructures, we are obliterating the infrastructures that support us by trying to create infrastructures that give us what you might call ephemeral benefits. 10 years, 12 years, 20 years is ephemeral. These have lived for millions of years. So I, I like, if I had a magic wand, I would sit my parliamentarians down, I would sit the prime minister down, I would sit the president of the United States down and say that, look, the earth has a favor. It's giving us warnings. The biosphere does not give us judgments. It's giving us warnings followed by consequences. So we need to create what I would call ICUs. These are international conservation units, you know, intensive international conservation units across countries, across borders. If we do this, we have half a chance of actually surviving the climate crisis that has hit us. Because for all the panels that we've made, the solar panels and the other stuff we've done, who's talked about bringing the carbon that's already up there back down to earth? Now, I, for one, have very little, very, very little faith in the what you might call irresponsible optimism of engineers, of heads of states, of even wildlife guys who say, oh, don't worry, we'll do everything. We can't do everything. We will need to work with nature and the, a house plant is bringing carbon down from the atmosphere because you can, it can, all plants can take nitrogen from the soil, minerals from the soil, water from the soil, but carbon, carbon dioxide, it's got to take from the atmosphere. So when you have a broken ecosystem, when you have a devastated, you talked of grasslands and wetlands and, and riparian systems, when you have these systems which are damaged and they come back to life, they have no other way to come back to life but to pull carbon down. So we've got to work with the system. Um, that's one thing that human beings need to do. We, we, I, I call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, in our heads. Um, ignorance, avarice, um, anger, and uh, an attitude that we can do the best. And then apathy. If we can tame these four horsemen... I think uh, it would not take 40, 50 years. Climate change will take 40, 50 years, 100 years. But our lives would get improved and the problem would get much closer to solution within four to five monsoons. We start repairing ourselves like a wound that is healed on your hand or your knee or a scrape or a cut on your chin from your blade. Everything can heal itself. Homeostasis, it's the magical word. Magical word, yes, absolutely. Uh, Belinda, last, may I ask you to respond? And again, to my question, uh, what of grasslands and wetlands? What of looking beyond the tiger? What we're very good at in India is making rules, regulations, and plans. So we already have in place the Wetlands Conservation and Management Rules of 2017. 
we already have a national plan for conservation and aquatic ecosystems. And the central government, the state governments have identified uh, water bodies and they're supposed to work together um, to take all the steps possible, I'm quoting from the, the plan, uh, for restoration, conservation and preservation of wetlands. But all these things are, 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 are only as good as their implementation. I mean, it's like enforcement. Um, you know, wildlife enforcement was non-existent before and it's only as good as its implementation. We also, by the way, have a tiger vision, which is uh, known as Tiger at 2047, which um, talks about an action plan in a national level, a state level, a tiger reserve level, and a buffer level. But all these things um, require, I think they require good leadership, actually. Um, we need a, a wetland ambassador or ambassadress. Um, you know, somebody who is who is nobody will will not stop for whether it's um, you know a politician or a villager or or a corporate thing. So, you know, the tiger is sexy. Elephants are reasonably sexy, but we need somebody who's who becomes you know obsessed by wetlands, and that can make a huge difference. So, I think leadership. We need a champion. Yeah, a champion, a champion. How about it, Bitu? Can we find a champion for weapons? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can. We will. Actually, a lot of people now who are who have declared war on the biosphere will become the champions tomorrow because these guys are powerful. They're looking for their economies to be built and they know that their economies are going to be eroded. So once you have that as a motivation, I think a lot of things will happen. There are two or three points I'd like to add in if we do have the time. Um, one of these is that normal sanctuary, we run a program called Kids for Tigers. We reach one million children all over and we tell them a very short story verbally, but it takes us a year to tell it. That you can't save the tiger without saving its forest home. When you save its forest home, you save every other creature, including the nematodes and the microflora, and you clean up all the rivers and you save everything. On top of that, when the rain falls, it falls on the upper canopy, the middle canopy, the lower canopy, and then it doesn't fall on the soil, it falls on fallen leaves. That's how delicate our soils are, our carbon-rich soils. Those soils, what they do is they feed the aquifers, the aquifers feed uh, the rivers, and when the rain stops, they keep feeding the rivers, they feed our wells, those wells feed our farms, those farms feed ourselves. This is a story that one million children every year get to hear from us. But sadly, we're not in the corridors of power. And what happens is that while the children understand, and the children are the ones who have the greatest legitimacy to ask for a stable, functioning ecosystem for tomorrow, um, we actually, Belinda, we're, we're, we're collectively, you, me, all of us, we're running an adult literacy program. We're asking the children, each one, teach one, go back home and tell your parents that, look, we need clean water, we need clean air. There's very little else you can really bequeath to us. If I can't breathe, what good the gold you give me? So we also feel very, very dis definitively that it is necessary to redeem the mistakes that were made, to correct the mistakes that were made. I mean, at this particular point in time, if we were able to find from policy 
a way in which the people living cheek by jowl with the tiger or with all the other wild species that there are, then if they become the primary beneficiaries of biodiversity restoration, I think our job is 90% done. But right now, they are at the bottom of the ladder. They get toothpickings and they pay the price. So these are, these are basically it. I, I think uh, the, the issue of tourism hasn't come up. But um, tourism is a conservation tool. Wildlife photography is a conservation tool. But not if it's abused. Not if some guy uh, comes in over there in a helicopter, drops some cement down and says, look, it's in Kana National Park. Therefore, I am, a, um, you know, an eco-friendly. You're not eco-friendly. Are the people getting the benefit from this? Is, uh, is it possible that, uh, you know, the animals still have access through, like Belinda, when she runs a, a Kipling camp, it's it's an open thing. I mean, there are jackals outside the front door right now as we're talking. India has the solutions for the entire world. We have the one convincing asset, the one irreplaceable asset that very few countries now have. It's called veneration of nature. The veneration of nature is something that is in our DNA. And instead of exporting this veneration, we are importing false ambition. So this is something that I believe Asia is going to teach the world how to actually survive in an age of the climate crises. This is bigger than us. And the tiger is just a metaphor. As is the polar bear, as is the panda, as is the lion in Africa, so on and so forth. The megafauna are just the flags, like the flag of a nation. You don't worship a piece of cloth. You worship the idea of that nation. We need to worship the idea of the biosphere. And we are just bumped up monkeys. You know, we've got to accept that we need a little more humility and uh, that the first real measurable damage from the mismanagement of planet Earth is going to be the collapse of the economies of every single last nation in the world. We are a tiny blue marble and we are vulnerable and we have still not woken up. Belinda, would you like to add something on the tourism aspect? Well, I'm concerned that, that a lot of people think that, that wildlife tourism is the, is the sort of the big answer to many problems. Um, if, it's, if it's not very carefully managed, it can actually destroy you know, the, the very asset on which, on which it depends. Um, wildlife tourism can be, <laughs> you know, way out of control in many places. And the other thing is people forget that there are, you know, nobody knows the exact figure, but um, a decade ago, the estimate was 170,000 villages, and I think it's 275 million people living around our protected areas, including 53 tiger reserves, who depend on those forests. I mean, there is absolutely no way that, I mean, tourism will always be in a drop in the ocean for helping um, people that live around the fringes. So um, I, I just think we have to be, you know, aware of those things. Um, tourism does help the local economy. It does make, you know, help retain um, 
forests and protected areas that otherwise could be used for, for other things. But it also uses up tremendously, and I'm seeing it um, here like, like anything, the natural resources, whether it's water, whether it's firewood, um, construction material, and the local people are actually suffering because the water table has dropped so much. Um, and disturbance inside and outside um, the tiger reserves. It also blocks wildlife corridors with walls and fences. And these things should be discussed and, and, and put right. People shouldn't be running businesses um, and, and, and not being, you know, um, sensitive to these things. Uh, wedding venues, um, you know, are just, I, I was reading a verse from yesterday and you were saying, you know, that everything, all facilities available for the, you know, these huge 2,000 people wedding venue next to a, a national park um, and saying the ultimate wedding venue in the lap of nature. What? You know, it's, I mean, that's so ironic, isn't it? Um, yeah. And there have also been some studies on stress levels on tigers, but all these things are solvable. It's just that we need to actually sit down and, and people have to give their soul, their word, that they will do this. But that's, that's the difficult thing. Absolutely. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, thank you. Thank you. Bitu, uh, Belinda, Bitu Segal, Belinda Wright, thank you for joining me today on Asian Insider. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.